0: Today. Sold my soul to the company E-Store with Dr. Casey DeBurn. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I decided to take a little weekend trip, and so we went up to Newport, Rhode Island, and we were visiting the Gilded Age mansions. And if you've never been there, it's really a must-go. It's absolutely amazing. The, the sheer decadence. They have these palatial mansions that you would think you'd only find in Europe. Uh, and it's where the the Everyone who was money lived for a while. It's the Astors and the Roosevelts and particularly the Vanderbilts. And it's just these lavish grounds, these incredible ornate homes and the decorations, everything there. But what really struck me when we were there was thinking about everyone who didn't live in those homes. Right. All the poor folks who had to build and support and maintain and care for these few people. You'd have like four, five, six people living in one of these homes and literally hundreds of people who were in the community to support them. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who lived in the extended community. And it reminded me of a trip I had taken when I was studying at Moscow State University in Russia. A couple of us took a trip up to St. Petersburg. And we went to Peterhof, the home of Tsar Peter. And we're in there, we're looking around at all the incredible furnishings, at the art. And one of the other professors turns to me and he said, you know, you really can understand when you're looking at this, why there was a Russian revolution. (laughs) And I think the same thing was true here in the States. And you know, I think we're, we're starting to see that again, something along those lines. My producers had reminded me of another story, and I'll share another very short story with you before we lead in. But they reminded me that back in the 1900s, this unfettered capitalism that we saw like up at the Gilded Age, with the Gilded Age up in Newport, uh, and and that's sort of where they summered, but where they were really making their money was – on the backs of the Industrial Revolution and the people who were, of course, the laborers. And they had reminded me in particular around uh, an issue with the coal miners who were fighting to organize back in around 1900. And they were led by, of all people, the chief of police of a town called Mattawa in West Virginia. And the chief of police was named, well, he was called Smile and Sid Hatfield. And he organized the miners, and they commenced a series of strikes. It leads up to eventually the infamous March on Blair Mountain. Uh, and in that march, the agents approached Sid Hatfield or, you know, Smile and Sid on the railroad tracks where he was joined actually by the mayor of Matterwell, who was also standing up for the laborers and they had this tense standoff. The agents uh, said they had an arrest warrant and the mayor insists the warrant is falsified. It's this back and forth and eventually gunfire erupts. And in fact, kind of cool side note, if you ever go up to Mattawa, West Virginia, the bullet holes are still there. You can see them to this day in the bricks of the buildings around Mattawa. Uh, Well, at the sort of culmination of this, Sid survives the battle and he goes on to unite the mine workers and give the unionization's effort uh, a real hero he sort of personifies it he stars in a little movie uh he's eventually indicted on murder charges he beats the murder charges and eventually he and a buddy of his are killed in another shootout but the movement they start goes on and in fact the miners who march to the top of blair mountain identify themselves in a very distinguished way they take these red bandanas and they tie them around their necks as a symbol of unity in the face of oppression and what's really cool about this is this is the first real workers brotherhood at least that i'm aware of where there it doesn't matter what the race color creed religious background whoever people are they can join this group uh, and they, their motto becomes freedom through unity They identify themselves by wearing red bandanas around their necks. Believe it or not, that's where the term redneck comes from. We think the term redneck is for farm workers and people who are laboring in the field, and we deprecate and denigrate people who we call rednecks. But really, that's where it all started. It all started with this idea of identifying yourself as being part of an organization, something that really matters, something where you can come together uh, to be something extraordinary. And what strikes me most about that is what is the motto of the United States? E pluribus unum, right? Out of many, one. Uh, Coming together, this idea of bringing people together is what really differentiates just a gaggle and a group from a, a real organized effort to effect some right in the world. So that really got me thinking about people in general, labor in general, and how these things, as I said, are starting to come full circle and and, and are they? I mean, corporations have been in the ascendance for a long time, but are we seeing a, a reverse in that possibly? I don't know, I think we are. And so I decided to reach out to someone who is probably one of the leading experts in this area. Dr. Casey DeBrian is an industrial and organizational psychologist, a change management and operational readiness consultant, and an adjunct professor at Purdue University. He's also, and this is what really touches my heart, he's a volunteer career coach at Hire Our Heroes, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping veterans and returning service members with training, mentoring, coaching, and job placement. Those of you who have listened to the show before know that my firm and I are involved in a new initiative. Uh, We're partnering with Ernst & Young. We call Reabled Veterans, where we're helping disabled vets get back to work. And so uh, Dr. DeBryan and I are certainly going to have to have a a scotch offline and discuss how we might be able to work together. But uh, I'll tell you, Casey has over 22 years of experience in IO psychology, change management, training, organizational design, creating problem-solving solutions. He's led teams, developed foundational enterprise-wide change management and organizational development efforts and training programs. I could go on and on and on. This guy is as credentialed as you can get. Uh, I'm just going to welcome to the show and say, uh, Dr. bryan I'm assuming it's okay if I
1: call you Casey. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Jake. Appreciate that. Yeah, this is this is really an interesting uh, sequitur that you brought in the reemergence of people kind of taking a stand for themselves. (laughs) That is one of the things we're kind of seeing right now, right?
0: Well, do you think, is that true? Mark Twain once said, history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Are we seeing the next phrase, do you think? Are we seeing this resurgence? I think you
1: are in many ways. Um, If we just take a step back and we look at, you know, the driver of kind of like the great reshuffle or, you know, the great resignation or the great recalibration, whatever you want to call it. We are seeing in many ways, people kind of coming back in and taking ownership, right. And uh, holding organizations accountable for what they need or maybe what they're not getting. So absolutely. I, I think one of the, the things that we're seeing right now is this idea around people maybe having uh, past experiences positive or negative in organizations and any organization, right? Pick your flavor. And the the funny thing is is COVID brought around this massive shift in I guess people's individual empowerment, their willingness yeah. to kind of stand up and say, I will accept this, but I will not accept that. Right? And we saw Yeah we, we saw organizations that were closing, we saw mass layoffs during COVID Uh, We saw people taking on heroic efforts across many organizations, trying to keep the organization afloat, giving uh, themselves in multiple ways, and many of them exposing themselves to the virus or to other health hazards. Sure. Take, for example, anybody who's working at a grocery store during COVID, right?
0: Absolutely struck me during COVID. Everybody is whining and complaining at the beginning, particularly, uh, you know, not to put politics into this, but more from the right. You heard people, well, these lazy people go back to work. And I kept saying, well, my local grocery store is hiring. Uh, If you you think everyone should just go back to work, go stock shelves, man. But, you know, who wants to risk their lives for 12 bucks an hour? Everyone talked about, I think you're so right, Casey. People talked about, the nurses and the firefighters and the paramedics and the cops, who were heroes, absolutely. I'm, I married a nurse, uh, absolutely were heroic beyond belief during, during this entire episode. But we don't talk about the people at the meatpacking plant. Right. Or the people who, who, like you say, at the grocery store or all these other places where, you know, truck drivers and and people working logistics. We had to keep things moving and we had to keep not just the economy going, but the world going.
1: Absolutely. Right. I think they were dubbed the essential workers. Right. You're essential. Right. So the, the essential goes into anybody like that working in manufacturing, food production. We saw recently with the with the baby formula issues coming into play, all those folks in manufacturing who are making that product that people need, right? Right. The dairy farmers, uh, the truck drivers, the the ranchers, uh, the folks coming in stocking the shelves. But then also, what about the auto mechanics, the Department of Transportation people that are keeping the roads in roads in check, fixing the lights, all that infrastructure. Mm-hmm.
0: You know what really strikes me about that, though, Casey, as you're listing these people. With very few exceptions... These are the people we typically cast. When we're saying essential workers, it's almost become this polite euphemism. These are the people we used to think of as the blue collar, the people who weren't of a certain caliber, right? With the exception of, of course, there are exceptions, you know, the the doctors and, uh, well, I was going to say the lawyers, but nobody really needs lawyers. But <laughs> <laughs> But when we're talking about physicians and we're talking about some of these folks, yes, they're essential. But by and large, I think... In my experience at least, what COVID came to bring to our to the fore, to our attention, is these people who these people, right, who typically the elites would look down their nose at they're who are essential to an economy moving forward.
1: Exactly right. And one of the things that we see is and this goes back to just goes back to the story around the, the mine workers and the striking, is we have this this unbalanced I guess we would call it unbalanced sharing of our society, where we have many people who are taking on heroic efforts to make just America run daily. Right, and then we have uh, we have the privileged few who take advantage of that. Right.
0: Yeah. What is it like? Four hundred families control 65 percent of the wealth in the United States currently. It's It's a travesty. I, I, I hear you. And yet the average worker's wages have not gone up since I think it's 1979. Right. You know, we now have two income families just so you can get by. Uh, and and I hear you, but on the other hand, you know, and let me play, if not devil's advocate, let me play angel's advocate on, on the other side, uh, you're uh, a student not just of industrial and organizational psychology, but I'm sure of the history of labor and work. And when we think about the the changes we've seen just in – well, not your lifetime because you're not old like I am, but in my lifetime, we, we've seen these dramatic shifts, right? It It was – I'm – old enough to remember, or at least, you know, my my parents, my grandparents remembered when we referred to laborers as bodies. How many bodies do you have? And then it went to backs. How many strong backs, right? How many hands when we went to the factory? And we started to evolve to how many heads do you have working for you? How many eyeballs? (laughs) It wasn't until very recently, we started to think about humans as, I don't know, humans. Mm -hmm. And do you, see that as a progression? Or or do we still commoditize? Do we still think about, you know, just our laborers
1: as labor? That's a really good question. I think in many ways, organizations as a whole still think about laborers, people as laborers, right? Yeah. Rod Wagner wrote this great book called Widgets. And in it, he talks about organizations refer to their people as their greatest asset, headcounts, backs, bodies, personnel, but here's the thing: people aren't widgets. People are people. What we're seeing with this is this this new shift in people saying, "You know what? I don't want to go put myself at risk. I don't want to to go and commute 12 miles, you know, and and spend a hundred dollars a month on gas for my car. That's going to break me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to work 60 hours a week for for 12 dollars an hour. And so what we are seeing now is a lot of folks standing up." And kind of this resurgence in many ways of, of workers' rights. Uh, the Great Resignation caught a lot of organizations and a lot of, lot of industries off guard. Yeah. Everything from technology to logistics to heavy durable goods manufacturing. And now they're like, wow, what do we, what do we have to do to get folks? Well,
0: yeah. I want to hit the rewind button just for a few seconds because what you said was really intriguing to me, very interesting. You talked about how uh, Rod Wagner in his book Widgets has taught, and by the way, we'll post a link to that book uh, on the site. Really great read. Uh, and he refers to people, and he makes the point of uh, of people being referred to as assets. Right. I'll tell you, it's a, it's a term that's always kind of bugged me, that and human capital or human resources. Most of those bug me because assets connotes the notion that they're fungible units, right? That they're interchangeable, that, you know, it's like when we were kids, when we would swap baseball cards. I'll give you, you know, three Mickey mantles for uh, Joe DiMaggio. I don't know if that was a fair trade, but you (laughs) get my point. But, you know, uh, uh, Jacques Fitzsens, I don't know if you know his work, in his book, Human Capital, he makes the point that humans are unlike any other asset, quote unquote, of an organization in several ways. One of them is they get to, go home at night. They also are volitional assets, right? They get to make a decision and they also, well, everything else in an organization is inert, is is meaningless until humans act on it. And, you know, um, I, I'll tell you, uh, forgive the minimal digression, but I was actually talking about just this topic one time. Uh, I was speaking at a conference and I was talking about The value of your people and how you engage your people more effectively in your organization, this kind of thing. This is back when I worked for the Gallup organization. And someone in the audience keeps interrupting me and he keeps saying, well, you don't understand. Well, I'm a nonprofit and things are completely different with us. And he kept saying that repeatedly. And finally, very much to her credit, the EVP of HR of one of the Fortune 50, and I won't embarrass her by mentioning who, she gets up and says to him, no, you don't understand all of our people are volunteers. They all, every morning, they make a decision, right? They get to choose, we don't have indentured servitude or slavery anymore in this country, thank heaven. People get to decide every day. And I think to your point, Casey, what you're speaking to is, people are like starting to wake up to that, right? This notion of you're not obligated to do the 20 years, 30 years and get the gold watch and, you know, you have rights also and and you have a right to a life.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And what we're seeing is, I mean, and this is historical, this goes back to, you know, the economy is cyclical. And what we're seeing now is we, we see these ebbs and flows and these peaks and valleys in how workers kind of rise up when they feel that their personal safety, their rights, their psychological safety, their happiness are being impacted, right? Uh, we saw this take effect in the 80s, right? And we had the, the you know, kind of a, a great not a great recession, but a, a really substantial recession. And workers, again, lost their jobs. Uh, people were taking in heroic hours. You had departments of one taking on all this work. And people remember that, mm-hmm. right? And they remember that again in 2008 with the Great Recession, right? And people were laying off. And it, was, it wasn't it was so much about, you know, you're lucky to have a job. It was, I'll keep my head down. I'll do my best work possible because I want stability and safety, but I will remember how the organization treats me. And then when the realization ends, what happens? You see all these people right. that get up and they're like, you know what, I remember how you treated me. That's right. Well, look, I remember
0: likewise in the middle of those two. You remember around the late 90s, the early aughts, when we were first talking about virtualized workforces and everyone was, oh, the office is dead. And, you know, you could just telecommute. And it, it turned out to be a pipe dream until now, you know, post-pandemic or in the tail end, please goodness, of the pandemic, when people are starting to realize, hey, you know, they need us more than than we need them with, you know, unemployment is not a factor anymore. There's probably three jobs for every applicant right now. Uh And we've, yeah, to your point, I think you're right. It is cyclical to some extent. uh, And we're, we're seeing whether it's the crest or the ebb. I guess it depends on your perspective. Where, where, where do you see that leading? What's the natural progression?
1: I think what we're going to see is a, a natural progression, and we are seeing this now, where people do a couple different things during times of t- turbulence, right? During economic turbulence, people will kind of resort to a couple right. different activities. And the first one is they're going to stay where they're at because they, they value that safety, they value that security, uh, they may not feel like their job's in risk, but there will be some effects that will come out of that, that they will take credence to around how they're treated, the amount of hours they're expected to put in. Uh, COVID, for example, do I put my, my health and my risk at safety in order to do my job? Yeah. People will also retreat to developing additional skill sets, right? We saw a huge influx in adults returning to school during COVID. A lot of folks were laid off and they were either looking to reskill gain new skills or maybe move into a new area completely. And so there was this large spike in adult learners returning to schools. Maybe not for degrees, but definitely for certifications, reskilling, uh, technology, all that. Yeah. And then you have the other folks, this third group though, will kind of fall back. And they'll be like, is this really what I want to be doing? And they will take an entirely new shift, right? I don't want to work anymore. I want to be home with my kids, or I want I want to be part of the PTA, or maybe I'm going to take early retirement. So massive life choices and decisions are really made during these economic shifts. Yeah, and we're going to see this again. We're seeing this right now with the inflation that we're experiencing in the U.S. Gas prices at all time high, food is at all time high, and that dollar that minimum wage dollar that our workers are getting yeah it's it's not even it's not even basic needs now
0: you know i was talking to uh my son is in his young 30s and a couple of his friends and they're looking at me now and they're saying for what you know why jump on that that gerbil hamster wheel whatever the you know, the hedonic treadmill why work my butt off so i can get her Better, you know, home so I can work to get better furnishings, so that I can get a better home when my furnishings don't fit. So, I, and on and on and on it goes, and. Several of them are telling me, which you know, when I was their age, of course, you fell for that, right? And you and you went right into the trap, and you worked your butt off until first you're born, you go to school, you work, you die. uh sort of the model. Right. And where do you live in the middle of that? And, and and I think more of them are starting to see that. But what's interesting to me also, uh, as you talk about this, Casey a couple of thoughts came to mind. I scribbled a couple of notes. One is there, there was this great social psychologist philosopher who you're probably familiar with, but our, our listeners may not be, named Eric Fromm. And Eric Fromm wrote this book famously where he talked about escape from freedom or the fear of freedom. And he made the point that societies in general, we fight like hell to be free. And then once we're free, we get Afraid of just being free. And that's why you see this rise again in authoritarian, totalitarian regimes is when people have this sort of fear of freedom. And so one of the things I'd love to get back to you with you is are we seeing that as part of a cycle? Are we seeing right now people revolting against uh, this idea of being a wage slave? forgive the term, but this idea of being bound to the corporation and having to work your butt off and live in the company town and, you know, do all these sorts of things. And now I want to be free. And so now I'll migrate toward uh, and another thing I want to talk to you about today is the gig economy. Oh yeah. And so maybe I'll have this freedom, but you know, that's, that's scary, right? It's you know, <laughs> no one's paying my insurance and taking care of, you know, making sure I got the mortgage paid at the end of the month.
1: Yeah, we've seen a huge spike in the gig economy. Um, and actually, you know, I'm, I'm part of the gig economy my, myself with uh, my sideline consulting and actions like that. And what we're really seeing is people opting out, kind of what you're saying with, no, I don't want to do that. Right. I don't want to be beholden to somebody. I don't want to have to, to punch a clock. I want to work on projects I find interesting. And it's almost altruistic or self-fulfilling in many ways where people are saying, I will choose the work I want to do and I will command the pay that I feel I need. Right. And this affords them huge opportunities to travel, work where they want to, to take on interesting projects. And that's wonderful. The downside is, is that to be that free, you are giving up some securities. Right, right. We give up, I mean, it's
0: a trade-off, freedom and security. But the other side of that coin, though, Casey, is, and I've really thought about that, by the way, I'm glad you brought that up, that you're really, when you think about it, you know, maybe uh, in many ways a gig economy worker, right? You think about being, even in your role as faculty, whether, I don't know if you're on a, a tenured track, but even if you're on a tenure track, uh, those of you listening who don't know any better, your real income comes from elsewhere when, when you're a professor for the most part, right? Uh, that's how you get a nicer house and a nicer car. Uh, everyone who thinks, by the way, out there that university professors have it made, uh, wow. Uh, I'll tell you, check the numbers. But uh, they do it out of – which is awesome, right? Most professors do it out of a true love of teaching or research or both. It's one or the other or both or, and, and working with the kids. Uh, and incidentally, for me, kid is, I'm sold so anyone under 40 is kid. <laughs> but when, when you talk about that and you talk about this sort of trade off between freedom and security, I think also from the lens of myself as a business owner, right? And one of the challenges I and, and my colleagues, and, and I own a mid sized company now, but I was a Fortune 50 exec, and we see this rise of what I think. The people in, on the corporate side would, would tend to frame it as a decreased work ethic, right? They would start to say, I think if I asked my, my fellows who I've worked with in the past, how do they see this move toward freedom and work-life balance and toward these issues? I think they'd see that as, well, people are lazy and they just don't want
1: to work anymore. What, what do we say to them? I say um, maybe reframe that and – look at it from the lens of people aren't lazy, but they want to choose the work they're doing and they want to be satisfied in their work and they actually want fulfillment in their role. I don't think people are any lazier. I mean, the, we hear it all the time, you know, the, oh, the the greatest generation, the boomer generations and their work ethic and they stayed at an organization for 30 years and then another 15 after that. We see a shift in generations around how people view work. yeah. But then also in in the satisfaction and the fulfillment they get from their job. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of, lot of generational shifts and you can't even say that it's, it's the millennials or, or Gen Z or the new generation coming up because I know people who are Gen X, like, like my generation who are, who have chosen to remove themselves and take on those, those gig roles or become their own full-time consultants. And what we're really seeing is people saying, no, I don't want to do just work. I want to do work that's meaningful, that matters to me. Meaningful,
0: yeah. You know, it's it's so interesting. As you say that, I, I candidly, I'd never thought about it this way. But really what we're talking about is a fairly historically recent phenomenon, I guess. Because when you talk about like, Let's talk about how Henry Ford sort of changed the nature of work and bringing people to production lines. Before that, most people were employed either at agricultural initiatives, in which case, look, nobody takes more pride in their work than farmers. Uh, I've known a couple of genuine actual farmers and ranchers. And most of them are, are enormously proud of what they do. And then the other cast of folks we had before the Industrial Revolution were persons, right. right? People who did crafts. Whether that was making quilts or making chairs or whatever you were doing. And do we maybe in some ways see not uh, a change so much as, based on what you're saying, a return, right? Maybe we're coming back to saying, I don't want to just be a cog in the machine anymore. I want to be... Engaged in some sort of meaningful
1: work that makes a difference. I really think we are. Yeah. When I when I look at the the students that are in my classrooms, I have a wonderful mix of adults that are returning to school, and then also I have kids that are kind of just you know finish their bachelors and moving into graduate levels. And the number one theme that comes out of every conversation I have with with folks is, I chose this profession. I chose this role because it means something to me. And I want to pursue this for a higher personal achievement, right? I want to contribute in a way that resonates with me. Mm. And I think when we think about the post-industrial movement, we think about post-industrial leadership, and even the the psyche around giving your life to organization for 30 years, working in a cubicle, that shift, they see that as soul-sucking. That's not living. And- we see a lot of this could come about where people are kind of designing their own lives. And the way that they're doing that is through the gig work or through you know contract work or maybe even just working at our organization for a year, doing something fun and exciting, and then moving to a new company, right? Yeah. And a lot of this great reshuffle, ironically, goes back to that same sentiment. People left COVID, right? People got real with themselves. Am I happy? Am I doing what I want to do? Do I feel appreciated? Do I feel valued? Am I making the money that I should be making? And if the answer is no, then they're saying, "Well, I'm I'm going to go do that instead." Yeah, very
0: interesting. You know, again, uh, I think such an interesting perspective. It's bringing me back, not to make this all personal, but you know, my daughter when she was, uh, she's. in her upper thirties now, I'm not supposed to say you're any woman's age, let alone your own daughter. But uh, I'll remember when she was, uh, I think she was nine. Yeah, she wasn't even 20 yet. She was still in her teens and she had just gone to college and she was going to do a degree in marketing because that's the track you were supposed to be on, right? She'll get the degree in marketing, then she'll get the obligatory MBA, I'm sure, with an emphasis in marketing and do all that she calls me up one day and says, not she wants to quit college, she wants to change her major. She said, dad, I'm supposed to be a teacher. And I was like, oh yeah, you are. And she went on and you know, started teaching special needs education and taught in Teach for America. Well, she did the whole thing and she did the track right. But I think that's very resonant to what you're saying is instead of this path we've laid out for them, you know, I was uh, taught as a, a professor at the same time you and I overlap for a couple of years there. And we remember when, you know, the they would come in, just finish a bachelor's degree. Well, you know, now obligatorily I have to get my MBA. Right, And I think you're starting to see the, I don't want to say the devaluation of the MBA. I think, look, the MBA, I taught in the MBA program for years and I taught the capstone courses in leadership and strategy and those kind of things. And, and I used to tell my students at the beginning of every, at the beginning of the program, not even the semester, but What the MBA will give you that's incredibly valuable is a way to think differently, right? Same as law school, same as medical school. It'll give you a way to think differently. I don't think that will ever go away. But I think the MBA, right, as the golden ticket, what what do you think? Is that still?
1: Oh, I would agree with you totally. I think the MBA is devalued. Uh, It's it's a saturated market, right? It's a saturated channel. Everybody and every university offers an MBA, right? Right. That was kind of that was kind of the the go to for career progression. Where you get your bachelor's, you work for a couple of years, you get your MBA and then you move up. Um, and now what we're seeing is we're seeing a saturation in that. And what I'm actually telling people to do, and this even goes for my for my veterans that I'm consulting with, our transition military, is I say if it, the MBA makes sense for what you want to do and what you want to pursue, do it. Right. But I'm actually Saying maybe take a step back and look at if there's a specialization that makes more sense for you rather than an MBA. Maybe it's a finance specialization. And it may may not even be a master's degree. It might be just a certification. Right. Right. The idea of, of funneling thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to get a degree that will have no return on investment is ludicrous.
0: Well, it's the same conversation I've had, and I'm sure you've had with students who want to pursue the PhD. I've always told them, look, there's, there's really two reasons to get a PhD. Uh, one is because you really need it to do the kind of work you want to do, whether that's research or teaching, whatever else it is. Number two is because you like, people have to call you doctor. And that's cool. And if that's you know that could be a good enough reason for you if you want right. everyone to have to call you doctor. And by the way, we know we're PhDs, we're real doctors, not biomedical plumbers like those MDs. That's right. If you want to be a real doctor and and get that, you know, honorific, that's great. But I've had the same conversation you have, Casey, where young men and young women will sit them down and talk to them and say, what is it you actually wanna do? Start at the end of this and work your way backwards. No one is successful when they say, well, I'm gonna get a PhD and then, you know, or I'm gonna get an MBA and then. What do you wanna do is what you're saying, what I hear you saying. What is it you wanna do, what is it you wanna be? And say, how am I able to achieve that most effectively? And get the education I need to be able to do that.
1: Exactly. And you no, know, lots of times education, this will go sound almost uh, cynical, but many times education is devalued, right? Yeah. It's an expectation. It's a, it's a table stakes, right? You have to have a bachelor's degree and 15 years experience, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. However, there's multiple pathways to any career, I didn't start off saying I wanted to get a PhD, right? I started off yep. out of the Navy and recognizing that I needed some, some fungible skills that I didn't have. And so I pursued uh, my associates and then my bachelor. So I took like the longest route possible to get a doctorate. and But each time I took it, I looked at it from a perspective. Yeah, I didn't get mine till I was
0: 40. So you're talking to <laughs> –
1: I'm with you, <laughs> right? Yeah, but each each step of the way, and I was paying for it myself, right? Like no one was there was there was no yep. mom and dad saying, "Hey, you know, here's here's a money that we've saved up for your college or anything like that." Uh, this was all out of my pocket. So when you're working and you're going to school full time and you're raising four kids and you have a house and two car payments, what you're paying for education matters. And I was very aware right. of like, what's my return on investment? So choosing not only programs, but then degrees that would matter for me and help propel me to where I wanted to go. So in many ways, I reverse engineered what I wanted to do. And I started at the beginning with that. Yeah, we don't we don't see that a lot. We see this, this, this movement into high school, college, right? and then And then go work, right? Right. You follow
0: the path right. and you have to go from stepping stone to stepping stone. And, I, and what I'm hearing from you is blaze your own path. I mean, you got to decide how, you know, you want to be at the top of the mountain. Don't necessarily have to follow the trodden path. Maybe there's an alternative way to get there. And maybe, heaven forbid, you'll have some more fun along the way. Uh, how do you think, you know, a, a lot of my conversations in this respect, now that I'm out of academia, have to do with tech also. And I think this is particularly true in tech. I'm not dissuading anyone from getting, you know, a degree in computer science or, or whatever it is, or, or, you know, a master's in, in IT, but it's not necessary anymore. How do you see the democratization of education through things like the MOOCs coming into play with that?
1: You know what? I love MOOCs, massive open online courses. Yeah. I think they are one of the great level setters of our time for anybody. You may not be able to afford to go back to school. You may not have the time to go back to school. But you can get a high-quality certification education from top-ranked universities and experts, oftentimes for free, right? Um, And I am always the one to tell people your education, your learning never stops because once you get into a career or profession you love – technology advances Moore's law says that technology will fold upon itself as it advances right which means that the speed of learning and technology has to keep pace right I don't think I'm an expert in anything anymore maybe maybe five years ago when I was at the height of of research and teaching I was an expert then but if you don't keep up with technology if you don't keep up with changing, Theories and constructs and ideas that are that are taking into effect, you can lose that. So, massive open online courses, those are all great ways to people level set their education.
0: I'll tell you, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We have one of my offices, or, or we have a subsidiary actually in South Africa. And I have this uh, young, young, young uh, fellow working for us there. I mean, he's got to be in his young 20s and just brilliant. Uh, uh, codes like the wind. You know, I. I Told him once that he, he codes like Hemingway. I mean, he can do just in a few lines things that are unimaginable. And of course he told me I code like a hamster on heroin, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I get no respect. I'm like the Rodney Dangerfield of, of tech. But I asked him, where did you, you know, where'd you learn this? how did you learn to code like this? Universe, Johannesburg. He's a kid from Soweto he learned, he said, we had, uh, there was a public internet access. So when I asked him, where'd you go to school? He said, "Uh, MIT. Really? Yeah. And Carnegie Mellon. What? Yeah. And Harvard. And he started (laughs) listing them off and he just did the MOOCs for, and it's like, you know, it reminded me of, you remember, uh, what was that movie? Good Will Hunting, right? It's like, I got the same education at 37 and late fees at
1: the library. It's like, Literally getting the same education. Literally sitting in these classes. It is, and one of the things. Uh, my oldest daughter, she's a uh, she's out on her own now. College was not for her, right? Uh, she didn't want to go to college. She chose. She chose a trade. Yeah. And she's a she's a master welder, certified welder. She does HVAC welding, TIG welding, and she got her education on the job. It's so funny you bring that up. I was actually I was host on a podcast. Uh, and I'm going to have the
0: host of that podcast come on. He's a shop teacher. He teaches high school shop. And the way I met him was I ride and repair and build motorcycles. That's that's my, my passion, my hobby. I also do woodworking and that kind of thing, but I, I love motorcycles. And so he was hosting a, a workshop, one on electric vehicles that I thought would just be fun, and a couple of workshops on welding. And we got talking about how, you know what, that's sort of that Henry Ford thing, right, where we had to coax people out of the trades and into uh, coming into the factories. I think we are seeing a big reverse on it. There's, there's another wonderful book, if you haven't seen it already, called Shop Craft as Soul Craft. And the, the concept of this book, it's uh, I think his last name is Crawford. We'll post a link to it on the site. But in essence, this is a guy who he started out like us, just a you know, blue collar guy, started out as an electrician. And he went and do, does the route he's supposed to do, does the bachelor's, the master's, gets a PhD, goes to work for a think tank in Washington, D.C., and he hates it. <laughs> like literally, I think it's like a month. He quits a month with this think tank and it's the prestige job, it's everything, right? And he quits and he goes and he opens up a shop restoring motorcycles. And I think we're seeing, you know, this, this spins us back to the beginning of our conversation. I think you're seeing so many people who are saying, you know, is there not even an alternative path to success? How do I define success? And how do I get myself there? And does it have to be the way my mom and dad did or my grandparents did?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, one of the the big things that we're seeing right now is, and we've we've done it to ourselves, right? We've created this problem ourselves, where we for so long preached high school, college, right? High school, college, high school, college. Don't get good. If you don't good grades, you can't get into a good school. Can't get into a good school, you can't get a good degree. If you can't get a deg- good degree, you won't get a good job. And we've we've done this to ourselves, where we have promoted higher education for so long and now now we have these essential trades these trades that people literally need to have and we don't have enough folks to do it right right welders plumbers electricians constructions uh butchers bakers right uh truck drivers yep the the hard blue collar redneck right Skill tra- the my art quotes redneck skill trades right that we've yeah. Yep. we programmed people not to go for right because that wasn't a worthy profession yeah and you know what my daughter is the happiest person in the world when she's got a teak stick in her hand and her mask down right so i think what we need to be doing as servant leaders as educators as parents is not so much prescribing a pathway for our kids but talking to them about opportunities and what they what their passion is and what they want to through, yes. And then say, okay, there are 47 ways that you can pursue this passion. Which pathway do you want to take? Right? My my second oldest son just joined the Army out of high school and super proud of him. But he wants to be a chef, right? And I was like, that's great. And he could have gone right into culinary school or out of, out of high school, but he decided no, because what I want to do is I want to get some real-world experience. Sure. And then I'm going to use my GI Bill and then I'm going to pursue culinary school. And that's how I'm going to do that. So, again, 47 pathways. Which one works best for you, son? And how can I help get you?
0: And, and that's exactly, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Anthony Bourdain, read uh, all of his books and, and was a fan of his. Oh, yeah. Tragically took his life. But in his autobiography, biographical works. He talks about how he attended the Culinary Institute of America, which is, you know, sort of top of the chain. He said, but I learned to cook in, right, being a line cook and and sweating in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and in the back rooms. And you start to see to yourself, you know, and he never says it outright, or at least I don't recall him saying it. But if you had to do it over again, right, which path would you have taken? And I don't know. And and, and I think, Casey, the, the point you raised throughout our conversation is really, instead of trying to figure out A to B to C to D, which, you know, I I joke around with people and I'm sure you do the same thing. You're a former Navy guy, I'm a former Army guy. So I was really in the military and you were kind of, you know, (laughs) sort of pretend military. (laughs) (laughs) See, people are realistic. We could do that with each other. Uh, uh, There you go. What else? But I I tell them, yeah, you know, uh, and I'm sure you say the same thing. Oh yeah, when I was, you know, five years old on the playground, I thought when I grew up to become an industrial and organizational psychologist, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's very, very, very few people have an idea and, and have, you know, bless them. I, I, I'm envious of them. There's people who are, you know, I knew I wanted to be a physician when I was four years old and, you know, help my brother put a bandit on his boo boo or whatever. Right. That's great, but that doesn't happen no, really. really, you know, really. And And even when that does happen, it's because you're parents were doctors or your parents were lawyers. That, that's really why it happens. It's really environmentally shaped. And what you're saying is, to heck with all put your sights on what would make you happy?
1: What does a happy life look like? And let's get there. That's exactly what I'm saying, you know, and I'm sure I'm going to get some hate mail from parents who are like, oh, you got to give your kids direction." <laughs> no, I don't. I have I have five kids, right? Five kids, one grandson. And I have taken the same approach with every kid. And I take that same approach with my students. And I take that same approach with people I'm mentoring, uh, returning veterans, service members, uh, just people that reach out to me for coaching, consulting. What makes you happy and how do you how do you monetize that? Okay, great. Now you have an idea about the job you want to do. How do you want to get there? And you don't you may not need a degree right you you may not you may not even need to go to school you may just need a couple certifications and some work experience right but take the time to look at all that
0: yeah but then let me put uh, a, a little grist in the mill here and let's yeah what about technology how does technology become a factor in that you know there's this Big fear right now of the rise of the robots, and mm-hmm. AI, and the robots are going to take over your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, to some extent, that's true, right? Uh, and, and I'll tell you in a bit uh, an article I wrote about this. But um, what are your thoughts about as technology starts to displace people from these professions, from these jobs? How do you start if you're 20 years old, 30 years old, and starting to build a career forward? How do you account for the unaccountable? For those no one knows, to your point, what technology is going to bring, what tomorrow is going to bring. Right. So, how do we start to prepare for tomorrow today?
1: Oh, that's a that's a wonderful question. What I always do, or what I would suggest we do, is we look at external factors. Every industry has external factors, right? Uh, whether it's political, economic, social, technological, legal, environmental. These are all factors that are pushing down on every industry. And if you're in a job where you have to respond to those external factors, they're going to do that through the best way possible. Any organization, take technology, any technology organization, we've seen these external factors pushing down on them, right? Technology advances, but what type of technology does, do we need to advance, right? So we have AI, we working on self-driving cars, we're getting into better communications, right? Mm-hmm. We're looking at how we can uh, bridge gaps in language barriers through real-time translation. There's all this wonderful stuff going on in technology. Some of it is prudent, some of it is value add, but a lot of it is 20, 25 years off. Sure. Organizations use AI as a predictive, right? And we hear this all the time, predictive analytics, right? Uh, what might happen? But all those external factors are the – those are always the fly in the ointment, right? Political shifts, economic shifts, social and technological shifts. Nobody predicted a war in Ukraine. No one, right? Um, and no one predicted that the fallout from that war would be issues with inflation and oil and gas prices. Riverbaked throughout the world, yep. Right. Um, and and forget just the inflation, but the look at the global trades, the global currencies, and the hits they took so No one is immune. If you're in an area and you're working in technology or manufacturing, maybe you're just a coder, right? And you're just coding stuff, maybe you know, for some type of of open source software or whatever. Look to the future and say, what's the next best thing that I can do? You can't, yeah, you can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. You can say, okay, what are the trends? Educate yourself, read the magazines, read the blog articles. Take time out to see what's going on and look at not five years ahead. Look at one year, two years ahead, six months ahead and see where the trends are and what you need to do and then do a skills analysis. Do I have the skills to, to meet that? That's exactly. I I couldn't agree more. I do this
0: uh, keynote address. I've done it for a couple of years now that I titled Observations of a Myopic Futurist. (laughs) And I make the point that anyone who's telling you what's going to happen 20, 50, 100 years from now, just run because they're full of crap. They're trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. But – right. Three months from now is reasonably predictable, especially if you're talking about a macro investment. If you're talking about, should I go to college or should I, you know, learn to be a a carpenter? The world isn't going to change that much in three months, in six months. You can start to plan even for a year, maybe even three years now. And, And I think what I'm taking from your point is adaptability, flexibility, fungibility, dyna- dynamicity. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to change and to move. You know, I, I, I point out to people that when my father was first going to work in New York, the most populated job, the most common job in New York at the time was stevedore. Now, how many people are listening, raise your hand, and I can't see you, but raise your hand if you even know what a stevedore is. We don't have him anymore. Stevedore is another name for longshoremen. They were the people who picked up heavy things and put them down, taking them on and off of mostly of ships, and they got replaced by forklifts, by containers, Maersk. Uh, some of these technologies came together to do away entirely with the stevedore. Well, we don't have a bunch of stevedores walking around unemployed in New York. What happened? People adapted. Right, they they learned other skills and traits. Look, I'm not insensitive to the fact that when self-driving cars eventually are fully instantiated, there's going to be a lot of people who are displaced who don't necessarily want to learn to be a coder or you know do something else. But to your point, Casey, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Right. We're not going to see, oh shoot, you know it's Thursday. I woke up Friday and all of a sudden there's no truck driving jobs left, huh? Uh, and even the, there's got to be this transitional period. And then even when you the nature of driving a truck changes to, you know, the, the machine will do most of the driving. I was talking to a, a pilot when I just took a flight to, last flight I took to Australia. And if you've never done that, totally don't recommend the flight, but love Australia. It's <laughs> 24 hours in the air, 23 hours in the
1: It's a brutal flight. yeah, it's brutal.
0: Yeah. And so I asked this pilot, you know, how much of that does the autopilot actually take on how much do you do and he said by my calculations i fly about 12 minutes he said i fly at takeoff and landing and that's about it other than that the entire 24 hours is done by autopilot and i'm thinking half thinking to myself what the hell are you doing there right (laughs) they're still paying you a fortune but i am damn glad he's in the cockpit Right? And he doesn't have to do the takeoff and the landing. He's just, he tells me I'm quote unquote old school, right? And he likes to have the yoke in his hands when it's taking off and landing. The rest of the time, ah, he'll let the machines do it. And we're going to see that with truck drivers, is my point. So we're going to see these transitional phases. Oh, yeah. And I think your point is you don't have to worry about what's going to happen 50 years, 100 years ago, which, you know, I'll tell you, I'm. All about AI. I, that's my area of business. And people keep saying, "What about when AI takes over and general AI?" I keep telling people, "You're we're at greater risk of overpopulating Mars." over <laughs> you know the AI. Oh yeah, exactly. Relax, relax.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I know I think that's right. There, there's there's uh, a there's the reality and there's perception, right? And people have perception. They hear about all these wonderful technologies coming up. They hear about all these new new uh, opportunities. I read an article, a futurist article, where they said, right now, in our time, there will be 12 new jobs that did not exist right now in the future in five years. There will be 12 new jobs. Wow. Right? New entire categories. New entire categories, right? Wow. And I'm like, okay, that's really progressive, uh, but what you're making an assumption on are all these external factors coming into play and not messing anything up. So looking forward five years is ridiculous. Look forward six months, look forward one year right? and then plan accordingly. And if you don't feel safe or secure in your job, if you're worried about your robot taking your place, then start being proactive now and start upskilling yourself for your next move. Brilliant. I love it. I love it. So all that said, let's put it in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. And I know you've got five kids and a grandkid, daughter or grandson. Grandson, yeah. Okay. So you've got five and and a tyke. When the grandson comes to you and says to you, you know, Grandpa, cut through all the – I know you're a professor. Get over it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just giving some advice. What do you tell me as I'm – and now, you know, let's fast forward. He's 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Everything is changing. It's, you know, the only constant is change. Uh, Things are always moving. What do I do? What's your guidance? What's your advice, Casey? Oh,
1: wow. I think what first thing I would do is say, one, what makes you really happy? Hmm. Like, what makes you happy to do? What makes you, and I don't want to be cliche and be like, what gets you out of bed in the morning, right? Right. Because even like the best job in the world, you still have bad days but what what's something reasonable that gives you joy that you feel you can contribute to and that you can learn from right okay great never lose sight of that and it's going to shift and your job's going to change and technology's going to change and economy might muck it up but never lose sight of the purpose behind what you want to do and why you do it yeah and then once you know what that is get really good at it and continue to grow and learn and upskill and get rid of the old skills you don't need, and don't be afraid to go out and find the stuff that you do need, and take it from a novice approach.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. You know, my wife and I were watching uh, America's Got Talent of all things the other night, and there's this young guy. I think he was 32 from South Korea, and he was going to do magic. And one of the judges said, "Now, oh, would your parents think of that?" And he said, "You know, my..." My mother was all for it. She was all happy. My father, not so much. And they're laughing about it. And so Simon Kell, and he presses him, well, what'd your father say? And he said, you know, he was very unhappy about the idea of me doing magic. And then a couple of years ago, he grabs me by the shoulders and he looks in my eyes and he says, promise me that if you're going to do this, you're going to be the best. And it was, boom, I love it. To me, what I hear you saying is, look, There's a reason they call it work. Part of it's going to suck. Uh, And I always say, look, you know, for most people, 80% of that work sucks. Maybe 20% is great. If you can reverse that proportion, oh, my goodness, you have the job of your dreams. And what I hear you saying is if you can look more forward to Monday mornings than Friday afternoons, you're living a great life.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And then never be afraid to keep learning and developing, right? Uh, As your job changes, as technology, maybe you decide, I thought it made me happy. It doesn't make me happy anymore. Don't be afraid to switch. Don't be afraid to find something else that makes you happy, right? Well,
0: look at the two of us. Right. Where'd you start? What? Give me the highlight reel, just the top lines. <laughs> what were the jobs?
1: Uh, grew up on a ranch in Wyoming, uh, butcher for high school work, joined the Navy, uh, got out, wanted to work in veterinary technology, discovered I really didn't like that. <laughs> Uh, And then figured out I enjoyed teaching more. So I took the teaching training path, right? And from there, it led into organizational design and development. And then I realized I got to get smarter. And so that's when I went off and started pursuing higher education. Brilliant, brilliant,
0: brilliant. Casey, this has been amazing. I I really appreciate the conversation. I'm going to hold you to... Uh, committing to coming back to talk to us again particularly when some of these things start to shift as the economy starts to change Mm -hmm. as the the attitudes in the workforce start to change as some of these issues come up I hope you'll join us again to continue this conversation it's been fantastic
1: I would absolutely love it I I had a blast JT thank you this has just been great thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for
0: this episode We really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed the conversation. We just wanted to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the Tomorrow Today podcast is a nonprofit venture committed to bringing awareness to important social issues. Funding for this episode, like all our episodes, has been provided by Protected by AI and Codelock. Protected by AI develops leading-edge solutions at the intersection of technology and psychology. Check out some of the ways Protected by AI can revolutionize your organization by visiting protectedby.ai, protectedby.ai. And Codelock? Codelock is a game changing software security solution that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has said, and I'm quoting you, quote, Codelock appears to have the capability to stop the most sophisticated criminal malware." end quote. You can learn more about Codelock by visiting codelock.it codelock.it. And uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning into the conversation and please do check out protected by AI and codelock. Tomorrow today is only possible because of their sponsorship and because you're listening and be sure to visit us at our website, tomorrowtoday.show where you'll find show notes, links, and most importantly, ways to subscribe to the show. You can also give us a review, leave us a message or tell us what topics you'd like us to address in upcoming episodes. Thanks to all of you again for joining the conversation and for helping us make a better tomorrow today.